Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. our September worship series today on why Methodism is worth saving. And I say that not because we are actively under threat in Methodism, but there has been an ongoing conversation since February of 2019 when Methodists from all over the world gathered in St. Louis, Missouri in order to have a conversation about how we're going to understand inclusion moving forward. And that was not sufficiently resolved for either side. And so perhaps over the course of the time, if you had the opportunity during the midst of the pandemic to follow along occasionally in the news updates that there are two different sides that are proposing two different denominations. And then like most of us, so the rest of us are probably wondering what will happen. And so one of the things that we thought would be helpful is to think about what it is that is actually core and crucial to Methodism. What is it about this denomination that helps us to better understand who we are and what we need to be? what we're being called to be in the days and years ahead. So as we do this, last week we were talking about Methodism's unique take on grace. Uh, it's a wonderfully lush and full theology of God's grace, not just when we accept God's grace, but even before when it's being offered to us and how God continues to use God's grace to perfect us in love, to make us better, that sanctification that we talk about. So today we're going to talk about something that comes from John Wesley. John Wesley is often credited with being the founder of Methodism. He was not the founder of Methodism. He didn't start out to start a new denomination. It's not like when King Henry decided that he was going to start Anglicanism. That's not how that happened. Instead, John Wesley, his brother Charles, and some other Oxford Methodist people who were using methodology to give their faith form Monday through Saturday, were gathering together at Oxford University. And there John had been appointed to preach and also to teach. And as they started to gather together, it coalesced for John that people are called to be in community, that we are not solitary islands of Christianity. And so in 1739, yes, Methodism in one way or another has been around since that long, John Wesley wrote the preface of a book that he and his brother Charles published called Hymns and Sacred Poems. And in the preface, he writes this, solitary religion is not found there. Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. The gospel of Christ knows no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. Faith working by love is the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of Christian perfection. John wrote that because he had experienced that we need one another. Not just because it's practical or because it's helpful, but because it is what God has asked and what God has shown. For instance, sometimes we point out that Jesus did not call just Peter or just a few. Jesus called to be the first disciples, whom we lovingly refer to as the apostles, 
12 different persons. And you might say, well, perhaps that was necessary because before we get to the end of the gospel accounts, we've lost one. That's true. But the other thing to remember is that you have a better opportunity to explore the diversity of understanding. That's why there are, in fact, four gospel accounts and not just one. You had four different disciples experience Jesus Christ and his earthly ministry and desire, perhaps even were called by God, to write down their experience, their wisdom, so that we who are here now and those who will follow after us and even those that came before us had an opportunity to hear Christ in four different perspectives. It's very important for us as Christians to recognize that pluralism and diversity is fundamental. It's actually the foundation upon which Christ has built, having 12 different apostles, but even God's self, the revelation of the Trinity, God revealing God's self to us in three different persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That not just existing and having been revealed to us, but that the three persons of the Trinity actually interact with one another. There were so many times that God the Father in the Old Testament was preparing God's people to receive God the Son through the prophetic ministry, through the messianic prophecies, getting them ready to receive God the Son's coming into the world. And God the Son spends an inordinate amount of time in all four gospel accounts interacting through prayer and conversation and worship with God the Father. And then God the Son, who certainly did not want to leave us abandoned and orphaned when he ascended into heaven, decided to reveal to us the third person of our Trinity, and that is God the Holy Spirit. That he promised us that those who choose to receive God the Holy Spirit will never be separated from God, will always have a piece of God's self to encourage us, to embolden us, to hold us accountable, and to help us be better. That those were the gifts that God, within the Trinity, chose to give to us. And all of them interact. The Holy Spirit is supposed to help us remember what Christ came and did, and told those first disciples who have been telling disciples ever since then. And, lest we not forget that one of the most beautiful parts of the early uh, chapters in the Gospel accounts was that when Jesus was baptized, God the Father chose to recognize that moment and declare just how pleased God the Father was with God the Son. There's an engagement and interaction. There's a plurality there. There's a diversity. They are not all the same in how they are revealed to us nor how they function with us, yet, miraculously and in a holy way, they are all our God, equally. And so we are a people who recognize the multiplicity of our God. We are a people that recognize that in many ways, we are required to be together. That's why Jesus says, wherever two or more of you are gathered, there I will be. But who is the other, right? Well, fortunately here, we're not just limited to one other. But sometimes I think there's an assumption that that one other has to be a spouse or someone with whom we are romantically attached. That's not true. Your other might be someone with whom you have a heart and a passion for a particular ministry or mission. Sometimes the other might be somebody who you are just drawn to, who makes you feel more full and complete. And so the two of you have covenanted together through your friendship and your companionship in Jesus Christ to journey on and through your discipleship. 
And because of that, we are made better. Now, for those of us who are extremely social people, we like a bigger crowd. And for those of us who do not like a bigger crowd, I'm learning to understand that. There are people that don't want the bigger crowd, but you cannot be an island. Now, it's easy for an extreme extrovert to go, I would never want to be an island. But there are people who are very content just being with God, just themselves and God. I'm always that person that's like, God, I would really appreciate it if you send somebody else to hang out with us. That would be really nice. Or lots of people, like 200 people. Send 200 people and we'll all hang out together. And that's just the way some of us are wired. But it requires us to be in community and in conversation and commitment with one another. So what does that mean? It means that what we say and what we do has ramifications, ripple effect. And if we are truly focused on who we are called to be, resonance. It expands out into the world and people are touched by who we are and what we do. They listen to the words that we say. They watch us as we do things, acts of kindness and mercy. They look out at who the church proclaims itself to be and they wonder, could I be a part of that? Should I be a part of that? And as Christians, we have been called to invite and be hospitable to just that, people choosing to be a part of us. But sometimes that's what we think about Christianity, right? Christianity is reaching out and bringing people back in, right? Out, reach, come in. That's what we think it is. We think that's what it's about. Yet, Jesus will spend the vast majority of his time not in the religious houses. Jesus will spend the vast majority of his time out with people who did not feel welcome in the synagogues and the temple. And because of that, the religious leadership of his time can't figure out what's up with him. The text that I read to you today is actually in the midst of what we would celebrate as Holy Week. Jesus has already triumphantly entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on that donkey that's tucked in my box. And he has already had his Monday morning hangry turned over the tables and cleared out the temple. And now he is seated in the temple and he is continuing to teach and preach and encounter people. And today, the Pharisees have come. And you'll notice that the text began with, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. Uh, that's scripturese for the Sadducees failed to get rid of Jesus. Because those are the two powerhouses in Judaism in this day. You have the Sadducees, the temple priesthood, their realm and power seat is the temple in Jerusalem. They are in charge of how the people worship. From the very north to the south to the east to the west of the promised land, they have to come three times a year, if you're a male, to Jerusalem and offer the proper sacrifice. But there are a lot of people that don't live in and around Jerusalem. Those people still yearn to have something of a religious existence. And so after the Babylonian exile, they started to create houses of scripture, places where people taught what was in the scripture. You could heard it, read and proclaim to you. Those are synagogues. And the power seat in the synagogues outside of Jerusalem are the Pharisees. They are the ancestors to the rabbis. And so you've got the teachers and you've got the doers, the priesthood, and then you've got this Messiah. You have this Jesus, and he doesn't seem to fit into what the Sadducees or the Pharisees thought he should be. We've read the scriptures. 
We're well-versed in our Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and we can't figure out what you're doing. And we're not even sure that we really like you, much less that we're going to follow you. And so they do what all human beings love to do when you encounter something that you don't understand and you're not quite comfortable with, they decide to try to destroy him. They have come to not just humiliate him, but to encourage him to make a slip with his words so that they can have him discredited and even destroyed. And when the Pharisees heard that the Sadducees had not been able to do that, they thought that in their wisdom and their great knowledge, which they had, that they would try again. So they have come to the temple and they gathered there and one of them a lawyer. And it's not a lawyer like we think of lawyers today. This is someone who is scholarly in the scriptures, right? The law of Moses. And this person who is apparently so well versed in the law of Moses that he is a lawyer has come and chooses to ask Jesus this question. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Now there are 613 commandments in the Torah you don't have a good shot of picking the right one. Most of us wouldn't like those odds that in front of everybody in the holiest house in all of the land and in all of the world at that time, that they have come and they have asked Jesus this question. And Jesus responds, not with one of the 613. Instead, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. You shall love God with all that you are. And our opening hymn this morning, we sang that. We also sang the piece that Jesus leaves out from the Shema in the Torah, which is with all your strength. Because sometimes we're weak and we don't feel like we have strength, but we do have a heart, a soul, and a mind. And so we can sing now about all four. But Jesus says, that's the greatest. And then Jesus doesn't stop. Jesus goes on to say, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, most of us were feeling good about the first one, right? Yeah, I want to love God. I mean, I'm in worship, right? I want to love God. Of course, I want to love God. And then we get to the second part. Now, maybe, like somebody else in this room, when you hear the second, you can immediately think of like six people that you don't want to love, right? I gave you a low number. Some of you are up in the dozens, right? Because you can think of people, right? You can see them. You can hear them in your head, and you're like, those people. And you're like, God, can I get a dispensation on loving those people? I will write them out on a list and hand it to your angel, and you can just write that down. Sarah does not have to love, but there is no dispensation. There's no asterisk. We are called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So if it is something that we would want for ourselves, then we must want it for our neighbors. If it is something that we would ask God to do for us, then we have to ask God to do it for our neighbors. It means that we can no longer think of ourselves as solitary. The second greatest commandment requires us to think and act and love other people. And that is not cool. It's not cool. That's Christ. It's not about being popular and cool, obviously he wasn't. It's about being like God. It's about being holy. And when John Wesley wrote these words back in 1739 and published them, he was trying to point out to us that we are not islands of faithfulness, that we are a federated discipleship nation of people. 
We have been called together, each with our own individual strengths, graces, and talents. And because of that, we make each other better. We are not all meant to be the same. If we were meant to be the same, then all of us would be gathered right here and speaking simultaneously. But we're not. We're all called to different things. And because of that, we are better than if we were all exactly the same. But we also recognize that there are holes in the world. We yearn for holiness as disciples, but there are holes in the world. Places where people do not experience blessing and love. And one of the things that John Wesley was doing, which is one of the things we have to be careful about when we think about John Wesley, is that he was ordained clergy, and he was trying to do what clergy struggle to do, and that is to take concepts in the scripture and to build bridges or provide linkage to make them practical for today. And that's exactly what he and the other Oxford Methodists were trying to do. There were lots of people in England back in the 1700s that were going to church on Sunday. When your monarch is also the head of your church, you're going to show up to his church on Sunday. It didn't mean that you were a disciple of Jesus Christ. It did not mean that you were in a healthy relationship with your God. And it did not mean that you were living out the grace of Jesus Christ. And so they said, how do we fix that? How do we make it? And notice it was them first. They weren't trying to fix everybody else. How do we do that? And the first thing they figured out was they had to get together. They gathered together. And when they gathered together, they had accountability, but they also had support. And so they started to grow in their knowledge and in their wisdom. And some of them had gifts that the others didn't. Charles was musical. John was not. George Whitfield was a great genius at innovation. When John started to preach at Oxford that we were called to be the embodiment of love and to love other people and that our faith should have form. The powers that be, the Sadducees and the Pharisees of Oxford said, that's getting a little weird. We don't need you telling people that. Stop telling people things that feel awkward. Don't do that. And so they took away his pulpit. And John said, fine, take away my pulpit. I don't need it, which is miraculous because John Wesley and I are the same height when I'm in bare feet. And you need a pulpit if you're that height. But he said, I will make my own pulpit. I will climb to the second story window and I will use the window as my pulpit. I will stand on the bench. I will stand on boxes in a field if I have to. Because God's message for God's people is not limited to a building or your doctrine. It is for God's people who are not all the same. And so he would not be silenced. And what he built was this, faith working by love. Faith working by love. And he's actually connecting and reiterating exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love abide. And the greatest of these is love. You cannot have faith without love. You cannot have hope without love. Hope without love is going to putter out. Because there's nothing to sustain. Why do you have hope in the resurrection if you don't love Jesus? How is faith without love going to help anybody? Because you can show up to a place 
every single week. You can do the things that you are told to do every single week. That does not make you a Christian. It actually makes you a responsible worker if you show up at the same place every week and do the things that you're supposed to do. We value that in a career field, but that is not what we value in Christ. Christ is about showing up where the Holy Spirit is leading you and choosing to give of what God has given to you for others. Choosing to love them through what you have to bless. And it changes how we think about the world. So recently, this congregation joined with 26 other congregations in a social holiness group. We'll use that term because that's the Methodist term. I know if I use the other term that has been politicized, social justice. So let's go with making our world, which is social, more like God. Let's go with that. That when we joined with Impact Charlottesville and Albemarle County, because it's far beyond that, when we joined with that, some people got upset. I understand that, and I can understand why. I don't like politicizing things. I don't tell you who to vote for. I don't even tell you who I voted for, because that's not what this is about. But I will tell you I voted, because I'm a Christian in the United States of America, and voting is one of the things that we have that we can use to be heard and to affect change. So I will encourage you to do that, but I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. And I'm not going to tell you who I voted for to try to influence who you vote for. That's not my job. But if we have something, do we not use it to bless others? Do we not look for people who are gifted in organizing to organize the leadership of our church and our missions? Do we not look for people who have some musical talent to be in our music program? Do we not look for people who are gifted with the ability, the tools, the resources to do things that we and ourselves cannot do? And here's where it becomes Christian. We are called to do this for people who cannot do it for themselves. We are called to feed people who cannot feed themselves and their families. We are called to clothe people who cannot make or purchase or acquire their own clothing because Jesus told us to clothe the, clothe the naked. We are called to visit people who are sick and imprisoned because they are not able to come and visit us. So Christ sends us to them. We have been called to go and do things and to be a specific people. And so when we hear these concepts, social justice is a newer, politicized, atheistic understanding of social holiness. We as Christians choose to change where we live so that people recognize that God loves them. We as Christians choose to love other people who don't consider themselves to be Christians and us. Because God loved us before we were a Christian. We do these things because they tell the world sometimes without words, but with deeds and love, that God is God. You remember what we said in the gathering liturgy? God is love. And that's how we know about God, because God has loved us. And then in infinite wisdom, I think inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit, First John goes on to say, you can't say that you love God and hate people. Feel a little convicted right there. You can't do that. You can't hate somebody if you want to love God because you're a liar, says the text. 
I got to admit to you, when I saw that again, I, went, I kind of cringed. I was like, ooh, that's kind of harsh. But it's true. We cannot love God and hate God's people. The people that are not here, the people that are here, we cannot do that. We are not called to be haters. We are called to be those that love. And aren't we blessed to be in a commonwealth that is for lovers? Just reiterates that. We are a people who have been richly blessed by God's love and grace. How dare we squander that? How dare we sequester it and keep it only for ourselves? You can have it for your children, but we don't want it for their children. So when we, in the midst of our lives, Monday through Saturday, it's starting to sound very Methodist, recognize that we see things that just aren't quite right. When we see people that can't afford to feed their kids dinner, when we find out that there are people who have spent their entire lives here in Charlottesville and Albemarle County, and then as they age, suddenly can't afford to live here, that seems wrong. And not all of us know what to do with that. Have you ever had the experience where you hear or you learn or you experience something and it just breaks your heart and you're like, I don't even know what to do with that. What do I do with that? God, what do you want me to do with that? Don't we have that every time we hear about some horrible natural disaster or we hear about some horrible act of terrorism in the United States or somewhere else and our hearts just break and then people think, what do we do? Is prayer enough? What do we do? Well, here is a moment when God talks to us through vessels like the Apostle Paul and John Wesley for us to remember that God does tell us to do something. It is to change the community around us, to change it so that parents don't have to watch their kids starve to change the community so that as we become our most vintage and lovable age, that we don't have to leave. That when somebody is sick, they can find help. And this is in our DNA as Methodists. John Wesley and the other Oxford Methodists knew that they had to change things. People were hungry and sick. They were physically sick. And they opened up the first free clinic pharmacy in England. And there they gave them medicine that they couldn't afford and some of them didn't even know about. They gave them medicine so that they could be healed. Because we all know what it's like when you don't eat breakfast and you come to church and you're like, is she done yet? I am so hungry. Because when your body isn't right, it makes your spirit deaf. When your stomach is growling, when you have headaches, your body aches, you can't hear anymore. That's why Jesus healed people first before he died on the cross. That's why we are called to be a people who are attentive to the whole being, not just their spirit, their heart and their mind and their bodies. That's why Jesus convicts us with the words of Matthew. You shall love them as you love yourself. And if you would take care of your body, then help them take care of theirs. If you would tend to your mental health, please help them take care of theirs. If you would clothe and feed your children, help them feed and clothe theirs. That's what social holiness is. It is to look at the gaping holes, lacking love in this world, but more specifically here in our community, 
and to try to figure out how we can do something about it. Now, if 12 of us from Crozet United Methodist Church showed up at a public meeting for the school board and sat there, they probably wouldn't think much about it. But I have already been to a meeting with 1,200 religious people like you and me. It's harder to ignore 1,200 people. It's hard to ignore. There are 900 students at Henley. Think about the impact that it makes. Think about it. Jesus could have just fed 12 people. He fed thousands. And then he did what only Jesus can do. He told us to go and feed millions. He said, you're amazed by what I'm doing now. He said, people are going to come after me, and they are going to do even more than what I did. And I think about that, and I go, who's going to do more? And then I look back over church history, which I always wondered in the midst of seminary why we had to take that. And now I know. Because church history teaches us that we have fed millions of people as Christians. We have clothed millions of people, given out millions of gallons of water for people to drink. We have welcomed countless strangers. How many sick and imprisoned people have been visited because of Christians? Jesus was right. Shocker. He was right. And we need to figure out how to keep making Jesus right. We've got to figure out how we can help other people. So one of the things that tore at my heart was that there's an inequality on child care. And I get it. I became a single parent when my child was two in full-time ministry. There's an inequality in child care in this world. I used to work and scrimp and save all during the school year, not so I could send my kid to some really great camp, not so that we could go on some really fancy vacation. I used to save up for childcare because I had to go to work and my kid had no one. And I remember thinking to myself, how are you supposed to do this? You can't do it alone. But my family of faith, I don't think we're supposed to do it alone. I don't think that we are meant to be a people who let people suffer. And I think that just here in this room right now, there are so many hearts and minds and bodies and gifts and spirits that can make a change. And it's going to mean the world to somebody. Amen. It's going to mean the world to somebody that people would actually stand up for them, that people would take a stand, people who can feed their kids, people who can afford to live here, that we would choose to love another person enough to make sure that they can have what we have. Amen. Is there anything more Christ-like than that? And so we joined this organization. And I know that you don't have to like it. I don't expect you all to like it. Someone came to me and started to talk about it. And they were using those wonderful phrases we all like to hear. Some people are saying, they want to know, did you all like gather somewhere when I wasn't around and elect somebody to speak for you? Okay, just checking. So here's what I told that person. I said, I get it. I understand. And I'm not negating what you're saying. I completely understand that this feels political, it looks political, 
except impact never tells you who to vote for. They go to whoever got elected and talk to that person, but they don't tell you who to vote for. But here's the thing. I said, you know, I've never seen you at Grace Grocery, ever. And I've been to every single Rise Against Hunger that we've hosted here, and I've stayed the whole time. Never seen you at Rise Against Hunger. Should we cancel those two missions because you don't take part in it? Are we going to stop Bible studies because you don't go to the Bible study? You're going to have to pry mine out of my cold, dead hands. I ain't giving it to you. It's staying. Should we st- if you don't have children right now, should we cancel children's worship? Absolutely not. We do more with more people. And not all of us are doing all the same thing. We're all doing different things. And the difference in Christianity is, you know what? I don't really get this over here. It's not really my thing. Frankly, it makes me a little uncomfortable. This is my thing over here. The people over here do not have to destroy the people over there. You can support them with your encouragement. You can help to support whatever fiscal needs their ministry and mission project is. You can even support them with your prayer. And when you encounter somebody who says, you know what, this is not really my thing, then you, can't, you can be like, well, you know, if you don't like this, you can get out. Or you could say, you know what, maybe there's something over here that you might like. A real body of Christ doesn't decide that everybody has to be hands and kills off like cancer or everything else. So I hope that if you see somebody doing something wonderful from this family of faith, whether it's a literal ministry or mission project or working in Grace Grocery, I hope you will support them, affirming them with our gifts, with making sure that people that we know that might really bless that ministry get funneled into there. Or, you know what? I know that you're hungry and I know that there's something over here that helps for that. And let me introduce you to the person running it. I hope that we become those people. Because when your back itches, you use your hands. Right? When you need to go somewhere because your stomach is growling, you use your feet. The body of Christ needs to use all of what's at its disposal. All that we are and all that we have. And you are people who are blessed. And gifted. You have already made this small piece of the world better. Let's go out there and make somebody else's world better. And then, at the end of their days, maybe they'll look back and they'll say, I did see you, God. I saw you there. And I want to be with you forever. And then we'll meet again in the kingdom to come. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.